This is a Broad Pods production. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you chiching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com This is Broad Radio. For you, by you. Broad Radio, here for more. Hello and welcome to Broad Radio. I'm Jo Stanley and my co-host today is the brilliant Anjali Rao. Hello, Ange. Hello, darling. How are you? Long time. It has been a long time. I'm so happy to have you back on the show. Now, today we are going to be joined by... Christina Hobbs, who is the CEO of Verve Super, who's going to take us through what happens now that JobKeeper has ended and give us a few tips on what to do if we are finding ourselves in financial stress at the moment. Also, have you ever wanted to just um, change your life up a little bit? Maybe make a few differences, maybe head down an adventurous path, but you don't know how to do it? Well, today we're going to be meeting a woman who had that feeling, wanted to make a few changes in her life, and she is now the station leader at Davis Station in Antarctica. Yes, we're going to be joining someone in Antarctica. That's super fun. And, <laughs> and in just a moment, what does the humble bathhouse have to do with your sense of self-acceptance? Mm, well, we're going to be meeting the co-founder of a brand new bathhouse in Melbourne called Sense of Self, who's going to share with us her story of how bathhouses have led her down the path to a beautiful new self-acceptance. Now, Angie, it is so awesome to have you back on the show because I, it's been a little while, but that's, of course, because you're a single mum to a school-age boy in primary school and uh, you're juggling work and uh, mothering duties, aren't you? Yes, correct. Um, and now that it's school holidays, it actually makes it easier because it means that I'm not doing the school run on a Tuesday when I would ordinarily be with all of you. Yeah, it's such a delight to have you. And, and also want to acknowledge that school holidays is a good time to have you. We're taking advantage of that. But it's equally a big juggle for all of the parents out there when they do have work and kids at home. And so we're with you. We're with you. Parents. Oh, God, I don't know how, how people do it. It's just... It's crazy. And, you know, particularly when you're sort of doing it alone, it's, I, I, you know, do have help sometimes, but, you know, don't have any family here. 
And and that's that makes it really difficult. And it's like, well, how do I, you know, right now um, I'm not entertaining him. And then of course he's perfectly entertained by himself. He doesn't need me. He's fine with Fortnite and his mates. But that internal guilt is like, I should be there Mm. doing something. Yes. Um, But, and it never really ends. No, that's true. And I find during school holidays, the pressure to do activities is really hard as well. Like I have work and I need to be at home and doing that work. But at the same time, I'm like, well, I probably should take it to the movies or we should go to the zoo. We should be doing something all the time because activities is what school holidays is about. Otherwise, she, yeah, spends most of her time on the iPad or me cross at her for being on the iPad. So, yeah, it is a juggle. I mean, that's mostly what what they want to be doing anyway. Mm. Um, It's it's us and going, oh, my God, am I a bad parent if I'm not there, you know, cutting out paper dolls or whatever. (laughs) Um, and just you know, you might leave them to their own devices, and that's what they want. Oh, you're so right. My daughter has no desire to spend time with me cutting out paper dolls. <laughs> I've got a couple of headlines for you today, and that I couldn't get past because it's just been a great 24, 48 hours for Australian women sports people. Uh, the Australian women's one-day cricket team has 22 consecutive wins under its belt because they won on Sunday against New Zealand. That is a record that beats the record set by 2003's much admired Ricky Ponting's led national men's team. Well done to our girls. We're uh, very happy that Ash Barty won again, took out uh, consecutive Miami Open titles. And this one, I just love this. Have you ever heard of Molly Taylor, Ange? I don't know that I have. No. Enlighten me, why don't you? She is the only woman to have won the Australian Rally Championship. And yesterday, she, I would say she's become the most successful woman in Aussie motorsports history because she won the inaugural Extreme E Series race in Saudi Arabia yesterday. Wow. Amazing, amazing achievement. Yeah, really great. And this is coming from somebody who um, does not ever parallel park. I am... (laughs) Hugely impressed. It's super impressive. This is an amazing race, though. It's electric vehicles racing in five countries that have been impacted by climate change. So it's a really amazing sort of uh, concept, um, highlighting uh, those very special places around the world that are being very impacted by climate change, but also incredibly rugged terrain. And uh, she took out this race. And I've got to say, um, what an extremely extreme thing to do. She's, she's a ripper. She's one of my new heroes, Molly Taylor. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, so I should mention those headlines came from The Squiz, which is a daily news email and podcast that I subscribe to, again, founded by an amazing woman called Claire Kimball. So check out thesquiz.com.au for all of your daily news headlines. Now, Ange, I want to share with you a, mm. an amazing program that I discovered online. It's called the Naked Body Program. And it's an online course, I guess you could do. It's like five modules. And it's all about uh, body acceptance, essentially. Um, It's really interesting. It combines... Wow, what's that? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. This is what led me to it, right? When I saw the Naked Body program, I was like, oh, I don't tend to love looking at myself naked. Um, this is experience and theory and uh, expertise all combined into this course and they talk about things like diet culture and shame and how to rewrite your narrative to end up with the greatest sense of self-acceptance. What about that? How, wouldn't that be a dream? 
I think it actually is literally a dream. Um, you know, I, I would love to get to that point in my life. I just don't know how after 46 years I ever would. Mm, the the whole theory, though, Ange, is that our sense of worth is not contingent on the way that we look. And how do we change mm. the voices in our heads so that those voices don't tell us that we're defined by the way we look? Um, yeah, I, mean, I, I suppose sort of, but then it's sort of split between your logical mind, the stuff that you know about yourself anyway, and your emotional mind. Like I know that I'm really smart. I know that. Mm-hmm. But I also know that I stood on the scales this morning and despite killing myself in the gym every day for two hours in the last month, um, I'm now heavier than I was a week ago. And that will affect me and my mood for the rest of the day. No question about it. And no much, no matter how much my brain is going, but you're super smart. Uh, you know, surely that would override something as pathetic as a number on the scale. But it doesn't. Not to mm. me anyway. But well, someone put that voice there. You weren't born. Yeah. You weren't born thinking that. No, I mean, it's it, it's been very sort of um, in in my family that, um, you know, on the female side, what a surprise, that, um, you know, those sorts of things are very prevalent. And I do think there's a, a case for um, for that being genetic. But it's, there's also a lot of, you know, learned behaviour as well. Um, we're a very, very close family. Um, but I know that things that I saw in my childhood to do with, you know, weight and body acceptance and shape and stuff affect me to this day, every day, every day. Mm. What about you though? I mean, look at you and you're so tiny, you're like a a beautiful little delicate sparrow. And I think how on earth can Joe Stanley have any body image issues? Really? Well, firstly... Again, I've got voices in my head. I've got, I've got um, all of the conditioning that came with my upbringing and, and the media and, and, you know, all of the images that we're bombarded with. Um, every single woman has that and men. That, that's not a thing yeah. that you can escape regardless of how you look and regardless of whether it's you're happy with the way you look or fearful of changing, fearful of maybe putting on weight, fearful of ageing. Mm-hmm. All of these things that uh, you, you tend to look in the mirror and you define yourself by the way you look, which is so damaging. Anyway, oh, yeah. so so this incredible program, the Naked Body Program, is available at an amazing place called Sense of Self. Check it out online. We'll put that website up. Um, but Sense of Self is primarily a bathhouse. It's also a sauna. It's a massage and spa centre. And it has been created by two incredible women in um, in Melbourne. And I'm going to say before we introduce her, actually, if at any point you would love to join the conversation today in and around your sense of self, your sense of uh, body image, and perhaps maybe you've come to some self-acceptance yourself and you'd like to share how, we'd love you to give us a call. one three hundred eight 8 broad is our phone number. The phone line are open and we can take your call and we put you straight on air it would be great to hear from you and also you can of course share the conversation on youtube if you are watching right now live so i am going to introduce the co-founder of sense of self this incredible bathhouse because her journey to self-acceptance was really interesting and very intrinsically linked to the bathhouse culture she joins us now hi there mary minus hi how are you doing joe and Anne? 
Great, thank you. Lovely to have you join us, um, particularly on a morning where I understand your poor thing, the pool heater broke in your pool. Yeah, it did. These are just the things you have to deal with as a bathhouse owner. I've become like the best. (laughs) You could could hire me now to look after your pools if anyone has one. I'm really interested, Mary, in your journey around how you came to owning a bathhouse and how how that kind of led to your understanding of who you are as a person and your sense of self-acceptance oh absolutely well it's it's yeah it's a bizarre kind of business to end up in a bathhouse owner i guess i'd never thought that this is where i would be at 34 years of age um i started as a filmmaker actually so i was a film producer for 10 years before this and um I guess the thing that uh, that links in there is I, I like storytelling and I like um, the idea of taking people places. And uh, I guess what led me to the, the pathway of creating a bathhouse was actually all of the things around my body image. Um, I was lucky enough to be taken by a really good friend of mine to uh, a hammam when I was quite young, when I was about 20. And, and it was only through this kind of... Um, being opened up into this world where you can for the first time visually see a real diversity of bodies around you rather than what you see in the media which is very unidimensional um that i kind of it was the first time i'd ever really felt some kind of freedom in my body i suppose and in my mind about my body um because i saw women of all different shapes sizes backgrounds um ages um and for the first time in my life, I just kind of felt like I was okay. Um, so I think that's what the bathhouse affords us is kind of a, it's a space of hope, I suppose, for all of us to put into perspective, you know, um, either where we're at in our bodies and where we're at in our lives as well. And just talk us through that, um, the body negativity that you mentioned there, Mary. For you, what did that look like? What did the voice in your head say to you? Well, I think, you know, I've always had a very um, curvy body, uh, despite wanting to kind of look like, you know, I, I guess I grew up in like the 90s and the noughties. So, you know, it was that like, look, uh, the what was it, heroin chic kind of on the runways at the time, you know, like yeah. the Kate Moss look. And um, so, you know, what was kind of fed to us is this image of, of what is the ideal body. I mean, it changes all the time, actually. Um, at the moment, it's a different one. Again, it's kind of based on the Kardashian look, you know, so you need to have the small waist and the big butt. But it's like uh, at any given time, your body might not fit into that ideal throughout, you know, history. Um, if you're there at the wrong time, you know, you're not the ideal body. Um, so for me, it was really, you know, wanting to be, Um, having this thin ideal, which is a big part of diet culture. And um, yeah, I just, I think, I think what uh, happened to me in that space at the bathhouse was I just, yeah, I just had a bit of perspective, I guess, on the fact that health can be at every size. um, And actually what you look like doesn't, um, isn't uh, kind of uh, telling of what you, how healthy you are. So um, I think you'll you'll know about people like Taryn Brumfit who um, have the Embrace movement and documentary and, and I think she kind of went through a similar journey um, and, and so have other body um, activists, I suppose. So, yeah, that, that was how it was for me. I, you know, a hairy Greek uh, curvy kid growing up, you know, I just didn't fit in um, in terms of the ideal. 
And so from that moment when you're at that hammam and you saw a diversity of body shapes around you, um, um, I feel like it was a bit of an aha moment, but it doesn't instantly cure or shift the voices in your head. Was that a process for you? Yeah, absolutely. It's still a process for me every day. Like I think I really resonate with what you were both talking about before I jumped um, into the conversation this morning. It's, you know, it's really difficult if you've been told by every kind of media source all of your life that, um, you know, that there's something wrong with you or that you have to be a particular, there's all this expectation and judgment, no matter whether you are skinny or fat or, you know, what size or shape you are, you know, there's always judgment. Um, it's kind of like this unattainable, you can always be better. But um, yeah, it was, it was definitely the aha moment that set me off on the journey that um, saw me visiting 50 plus bathhouses around the world. And I thought I was just going to do a documentary about bathing through the ages and what it, what it affords us and um, in terms of health and well-being and social connection and all of these really good things that I think um, a space like this gives people. But um but yeah, it, what it what it did as well was set me off on that body journey, and and over time I started connecting in with the different kind of activists in this space, um, and that's how we brought about the Naked Body program. Was we brought together some of the best people in this space: Ashley Bennett, who's the body image therapist, um, and Nina Mills, who is an anti diet dietitian. Um, Shannon May Powell, who does the, this kind of um, trauma-informed body work um, in yoga. And it is a lot of letting go of that kind of those traumas, um, you know, that we've picked up from even early life. I think, you know, you think about sitting at the dinner table when you're a kid and your parents kind of telling you, oh, if you, you just have to finish what's on your plate, you know, even if you're not hungry, there's just always this kind of mantra of you don't know your body and you don't trust, you can't trust your body to tell you what it needs. And I guess that's what things like intuitive eating um, are trying to debunk. Um, and the data really shows that it, that um, uh, it is supported in terms of um, being a, a more successful way to engage with food. So, yeah. You know, I was um, reading up on you last night, Mary, because, you know, I can be a bit stalky McStalk face at times. Um, and, you know, you are a strong advocate for not needing to fix anything, which I found really interesting because I think that's part of the human condition is we do constantly see bits that need repairing, um, but, but then they never really are. What's so damaging about using that sort of language, you know, fixing to refer to ourselves? Yeah, I, I think it's just that whole idea. It's that marketing lens that's been put onto health and well-being. And unfortunately, rather than beauty being something that we um, are in awe of around us as an environment, it's kind of beauty has been um, used to shackle us um, to these kind of ideals. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, what we're trying to do here is have people kind of come into a spa and, and bathhouse space and leave without feeling that they have to change anything um, because like there's just too many times I've gone to spas and just felt feeling kind of shit about myself to be honest because um, you know there's kind of a an inbuilt kind of diet culture and sales mechanism there and it all goes hand in hand it's very lucrative as a as an industry it's just I just don't think that they have to exist together I guess 
I really love this notion that wellness is about acceptance rather than change necessarily. Um, and also one of the things that you are really promoting in your bathhouse is idleness. Why is it so yeah. important? And I'm, as someone who's never still, um, why, is this, why is it so important to find stillness in our days? I mean, yeah, Freya, my business partner, um, came up with this great phrase, which is idleness is essential to activity. And it really um, sums up uh, what we embody here. And I guess like why it's so important is that we're, I mean, we all know we're all addicted to tech now and we're all constantly on. Our work lives are encroaching upon our personal lives. And actually, um, I think I mentioned this to you the other day, Joe, that um, Australia is the ninth worst in terms of work-life balance in the world. Um, you wouldn't know it because it's not the persona that Australia has um, in the public, but it, it is actually what the stats say. So, um, yeah, idleness is something that we used to have a lot more of, I guess, because we used to have downtime and leisure before, I guess, pre industrial revolution and um you know it might happen again actually where we uh you know with the rise of tech and ai actually we might find that we have more leisure time um in the future so yeah i think it's really important for getting into like the um, parasympathetic nervous system and just being able to to reset you know mary my um personal trainer's mantra is always be happy but never be satisfied what do you think of that as an internal monologue yeah, I probably don't agree with that. Um, <laughs> I, I, mean, know. <laughs> I don't know. I think why be unsatisfied? Like life is short. We should be happy and satisfied. And if you're going to spend all your time, I guess it's it's like Nina Nina Mills, who was the anti diet dietitian on on uh, in the Naked Body, and she practices here um, in in Melbourne as feel good eating. Uh, she said to me, you know, health is a three-legged stool and uh, you have sleep and, and rest and your mental well-being, you have food and you have movement. And it's like if the part of you um, uh, in terms of the rest and the sleep and the mental well-being is just constantly uh, haranguing you with, with negative kind of thoughts about yourself, it's kind of like one leg of the stool is not working and you're going to fall over. So you could have all the best um you know food and movement um kind of uh activities going on and and yet you, you you're not you don't have a whole picture of health so i think it's really important to redefine you know how we're speaking to ourselves and how we're thinking and speaking about others as well and uh, understand that it's kind of you know body trust is our birthright um as uh, some of the um, advocates in the us have coined so you know we deserve to trust our bodies and our bodies know what we need and what we want. We just need to listen to it a little bit more. Mm. Well, I think it is a lifelong, uh, I guess it's a lifelong journey to use that word to really form a relationship with your body that's based on a kindness and appreciation. <laughs> and I feel, I don't know if you agree with me, Ange, because we're roughly the same age, that the older I get, the more I enjoy my body as it's experienced rather than to look at it. I think, you know, because it's so strong and I'm able to do things that, you know, I'm very grateful for. Um, but I really love this perspective that a bathhouse can bring, that you understand that what we see in the media and in the world out there is such a very narrow version of 
the body. So um, congratulations to you, Mary, and to Freya, your business partner. I love that you've uh, started this. Um, and I would encourage people to sort of find ways to, I guess, um, get out there and explore what bodies look like in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. I would encourage it too. So thanks so much for having me. Um, I hope to see you at the bar. Uh, well, yep, sure. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not my natural environment, I've got to say, but uh, yeah, maybe maybe I'll get down there one day, Mary. For a massage, how about that? Maybe for a massage, if you are That's in Melbourne. Idea. Yeah, if you are in Melbourne, do check out Sense of Self and uh, may, do definitely go to that website and check out the Naked Body Program. It is really amazing. I just loved it. Um, and... I promise you we'll be continuing this conversation in many, many subsequent episodes of Broad Radio around, um, yeah, getting to know and love your body and, and uh, true self-acceptance, Ange. We're working towards that. We will get there, Ange. Uh, we will. We will. One day we will. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Mary, and we'll have more Broad Radio after this. Well, it's been just over 12 months since the coronavirus pandemic forced much of our workforce to be on hold. And during that time, of course, many businesses and individuals were relying on JobKeeper, which finished last week. So the question remains, how are people coping now that JobKeeper has uh, ceased? And if you are in a situation where you're feeling really financially stressed, what can you do about it? So to discuss these matters and more, we are very pleased to welcome to Board Radio, Christina Hobbs, who is CEO of Verve Super. Hi there, Christina. Hi, thanks for having me on today. It is so great to uh, learn from you and have your expertise. Um, what, from your perspective, Christina, you're, you're obviously in the super industry, but more broadly around finance. What did you witness as being particularly challenging for women over the last 12 months? I mean, it's certainly been a really hard time. We at Verve, we're, we're a superannuation fund, but we also provide free financial coaching for our members. So, and that ranges from helping supporting people to get out of debt to right through to learning to invest. So we certainly saw the broad range of challenges that women were, were facing. Um, and I think those challenges were really varied. Um, we had some members who for the first time in their lives were in a financial pickle um, and didn't know how to deal with it and didn't have the resources. Um, we saw women who were already in challenging financial situations sort of find that, that challenge get even greater. Um, on the other side, we um, also had members who um, came out of COVID in a, in a better situation. So actually maintained their jobs, worked for employers who were able to offer flexibility and actually now can imagine themselves you know, potentially working more and being in a more financially secure situation. So it was definitely a, a really large range of um, experiences that people were having, um, which I think also made it quite hard because I know even within my friendship group and, and probably similar to you, I had some friends who had sort of benefited from COVID financially in some in some way um, or at least an increased flexibility. I had, on the other hand, some friends who had, you know, lost their income overnight and suddenly had, you know, two or three kids at home now trying to homeschool as well. So uh, I think there were these really varied um, differences even amongst the people that we all know. And now that um, JobKeeper has ended, Christina, uh, there were plenty of people who said 
it's too soon. You know, when you said at the end of March that it would be ending, well, it looked like it was possible then, but but now given, you know, the way that it's all panned out, it's just ending too soon. Um, when you look at um, women specifically and JobKeeper ending for them, what sort of short-term and long-term impact do you see? Yeah, I think there's two things that are going on because one is that is JobKeeper finishing, um, which obviously means that we're going to see probably a bounce in, in unemployment um, as, as some employers are unable to keep their staff on. Um, but what we've also seen is that job seeker, so that money that was being provided to people who were unemployed, has also gone back virtually to the level that it was pre-COVID and we've heard from the government that, that there's, there's no interest in increasing that, that beyond a very marginal increase. Um, and we also know that that rate is set currently below the poverty rate So for most people. So most people on that rate are not needs um, which is really distressing for people and if you look at who those people are and, and who which jobs were most affected during COVID and, and are having this longer tail um, of being impacted it tends to be jobs that, that women were holding um, so we know that that long tail of COVID unemployment is, is impacting women um, more than men um, and so I think both of these factors together is really um, is really forcing some people into a really challenging financial situation. And we definitely would have liked to have seen, if not, you know, JobKeeper in its current form persisting, um, certainly some form of JobKeeper where, you know, potentially less money is going to large corporations that are actually making profit, but ensuring that funding is still going to those small businesses that need it. Christina, I'm just going to pause for a little second because there is a noise coming through your microphone that I'm wondering if you're sure. rubbing with your um, hair. Um, when when you talk about, you know, you're speaking about the job keeper versus job seeker and, and yeah, that there has been a real cliff that people have been, work, you know, heading towards. Um, do you see people in real distress about this? Certainly. And I think what's really interesting and is important for anyone listening to know is that um, anyone can find themselves in a position of financial vulnerability um, and often it's people that aren't used to being in that position that can find it the most challenging because they haven't built up that resilience and they haven't built up the coping skills. Um, so somebody, for instance, who was on a $200,000 a year job, um, had $30,000 in credit card debt, other personal debt, has lost their job um, and is unable to find another position, can find themselves in almost as equally a challenging financial position with the same kind of stresses as somebody who was previously on a, you know, $50,000 a year part-time job and was only ever just making ends meet and has now lost their, their job as well. So I think it's really important to realise that there's people sort of at, at all ranges of the spectrum that are being um, impacted by what's, what's going on. Um, and certainly for a lot of people, it is hugely distressing. So we were on the end of the phone calls of, um, women, so our membership is 95% women and, and we were on the ends of those phone calls of people um, ringing up really distressed about um, having to withdraw their superannuation. And, and you know, I would say that despite the media coverage and a lot of media coverage that sort of highlighted stories of people taking money out to buy all, you know, sorts of crazy consumer items, um, I can tell from first-hand experience that the vast majority of our members that were taking money out, it was a really, really challenging, difficult situation to have to do that. They knew they were taking money from their future savings um, and it wasn't done It wasn't done easily. Um, also with superannuation, there's an expectation that people will apply and get that money tomorrow and, of course, there's a longer process 
you know, I think we really understood the urgency with which some people needed money as well during this time. You know, something that I find really disturbing, Christina, is that in this country, women retire with almost half the amount of super that men have. What is that about? And how do we level the field? Good question. Um, so there's a couple of stats going around, but it's depending on how you look at the data, it's somewhere between 47% and 37% less super. And I think there has been this perception that, oh, this is older women somehow, you know, young women today, they're not being impacted. Um, but we actually did a study last year that looked at the super balance of the millennial women and basically showed that they're on you know, not a completely um, exact the same trajectory, but it's a very similar trajectory of, of that, that, that without major changes, they will retire with significantly less um, than their male peers. And of course, the result is that almost all retiring women in Australia are dependent either on their husbands um, or their partners, if they're lucky to have one, um, or the old age pension. Um, and the reasons for this are really largely systemic issues. So um, we know that in Australia, we have... Um, some of the worst rates of workforce participation amongst mothers in the OECD. So amongst other developed countries, we've got some of the worst rates um, of women getting back into the workforce. Um, when it comes to single mothers, um, we are better than only Turkey and Georgia. Um, so very, very poor rates of um, that support. And that's largely to do with issues like prohibitively expensive childcare, um, policies that don't support women to, to go back into employment. Um, and so there's all these sort of structural issues, um, childcare being a big one, um, longer um, parental leave and parental leave for both parents, which encourage men and women to take time out, which also supports women um, to go back to work is a really important one. Um, and then a third one is that we don't actually get any form of retirement benefit in Australia if you are a carer. So if you're on maternity leave, if you're on paid maternity leave um, from the government. There's no retirement benefit. Um, paid carers in Australia, so who are overwhelmingly likely to be women, so women who are looking after um, family members that have a disability um, or other forms of carers also don't get a retirement benefit. And so these all add up over a lifetime. So um, often what we see is that there's a tendency of women to really blame themselves and to think that they've somehow mismanaged their money. Um, but if we compare it to countries where there is a lot more equality in retirement, um, there's really these very simple set of policies that are in place to support both men and women to retire in comfort. And it feels to me too, Christina, that there's not an acknowledgement from government that this is an issue when we see that more recently they were suggesting that women who, have, who are victim survivors of family violence and are fleeing violent situations might access their super to fund this which thankfully they've realised is not an, at all a workable situation. But when that is suggested, you think, I don't actually think you appreciate how, how um, vulnerable women are when it comes to their savings and their retirement for them to suggest this. Yeah, I think it was just, as you said, just a complete lack of understanding. Um, when women are taking money out of their super, they're often really acutely aware that they're kicking the problem down the road and that by taking out 10,000 now, that 10,000 in 20 years time could be worth 100,000. Um, and that's the money that they're gonna need to live in comfort. And so women in this situation are very acutely aware that um, about what, what's gonna happen to their futures if they're taking money out or unable to build up that balance. And it seems like the government didn't quite grasp that. Um, and I think what's more shocking about that is that we'd already seen research 
coming out from COVID. And we've heard a lot of anecdotal evidence as well, including from our fund, um, that women who were in DV situations um, or situations of financial control um, were being um, were being manipulated by their partners and had pressure on them by their partners to withdraw their superannuation balances. Um, and and that, that some of that money went towards, you know, consumer spending for their abusive partners. Um, and there's no sort of reflection that, that that same additional vulnerability could happen to women who are in a domestic violence situation. Um, of course, we know also that it takes women often multiple attempts. I think the average is seven attempts to leave a partner. Um, so the policy is, A, it's not fit for purpose for what it's trying to achieve, um, and B, really creating that vulnerability later in life. And I think particularly in Australia where we've already got a situation where women over the age of 55 are the fastest growing cohort of homeless Australians, it seems like a bit of a cruel policy to have, um, to have brought in. Mm, yes. Um, or tried to have brought in. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so just finally, Christina, what advice have you got for people who may be finding themselves in financial stress now? Um, because I think that often we are fearful of even facing the realities of our situation and can leave it too late to really address. Um, what can we do to sort of alleviate that stress if we're in this situation now? Yeah, I think you've alluded to probably the best thing that anyone can do, which is just to start off with a budget. So I think starting off with that really um, the hard facts, looking at what's coming in, what's going out, and really trying to understand what your um, what your income is versus what your outgoings are, and to try to set a plan for yourself. Um, you've got you. What we see is we have women who have done all that work and they just can't on a job seeker on you know income make make ends meet. That's one situation that women find themselves in. But there is this other larger cohort who it is the stress of not actually planning and sitting down and, and trying to work out a solution for themselves um, that creates you know a whole lot more stress. Um, there are also some really good um, there's some really good support out there. So one of the best ones is the National Debt Helpline, um, and this helpline can also provide free financial counselling um, to really help you manage. So this this is this hotline is great whether you're somebody who's been in debt or in financial difficulty for a really long time, or whether you've previously been absolutely fine, but because of you know these COVID shocks or whatever else, you need a bit of extra support. Um, and there's really no judgment passed by these financial counsellors and there's a lot that they can help you do and um, they can support you for instance to negotiate with your um, electricity suppliers with your water supplier with your um, banks to get um, debt repayments and and to to work out whether there's um, ways of um, supporting you to kind of meet those basic costs during um, particularly difficult situations so there's definitely support that can that can be given. Um, I think there's a lot of talk during COVID of um, how banks and other financial institutions um, had to put um, pauses on debt repayments and things. Um, what a lot of people don't realise is that um, when you're in financial hardship, is a lot of this is available to you anyway. Um, so if you are in periods of financial hardship, you can um, contact some of the um, you can contact your financial institutions. Um, and other service providers and also ask for breaks as well. So I think that's a really important one to remember. Um, depending on your financial situation, something else we talk to our members about during COVID is, you know, if you do have the prospect of regaining income soon, is just talking to family and friends about getting a loan. Um, if it's something that you just need to help you get through, 
something we suggested was actually going online, finding a simple contract um, and actually, you know, having a document, even if it's just written in email that how much you're going to borrow, when you'll pay it back by and if you want to pay any small amounts of interest. And sometimes um, it brought people comfort to just sort of have something a little bit more formal that they could um, offer to friends and family if they did just need um, financial assistance to get through a short period of time as well. So I think it's also about really taking away the stigma um, of that people feel when they're in this situation because certainly anyone can find themselves in a time of financial hardship. That is all such great advice, Christina. Thank you so much. And I encourage you to check out Verve Super as well. It's vervesuper.com.au. They are for women by women. So we very much love that mantra here at Broad Radio. (laughs) Um, Thanks so much, Christina. That's been really, really fascinating and super helpful. Great. Thanks so much for having me on. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Now, I need to mention, and we encourage mm-hmm. you to be a part of our conversation. However you might do that, it might be by leaving us a message on Facebook or YouTube whilst you're watching this. It might be by calling us, one three hundred eight broad Phone lines are open, and we're going to be actually joined by some callers in about 10 or 15 minutes. But also, we love you to take part in our More to Say poll, which is a one-question poll that we run every week. In the last week, we've been running a poll and on who we can to be the greatest female rock uh, icon and it won't surprise you know that Dolly Parton won (laughs) oh Oh, gorgeous Dolly look at her find out who you are and do it on purpose we love Dolly Um, at the moment we are running a new poll and the question is related to a new Australian study that shows 43% of women and 34% of men still work from home and so the question is about that gap between those that work from home male and female and what impact do you think that working from home gap will have and if you go and answer this one one question poll you could win a beautiful bottle of Blanc de Noir sparkling from Moores Hill Winery in Tasmania and let me tell you that is one of the most beautiful wineries in Australia Moores Hill there in Tasmania and now that we're traveling interstate again why don't you go Hmm. and visit wouldn't that be nice should we go on a little girls trip Ange absolutely I'm there down to down to Marshall Winery, and we would sample a considerable amount of their beautiful Blanc de Noir sparkling. We certainly would, yes. I think we would. So head to broadradio.com.au to enter that 
poll this week for your chance to win that beautiful bottle of sparkling. And we're going to be, in just a moment, joined by the station leader at Davis Station in Antarctica. That's after this. Broad Radio. Talking inspo we love, info we need and sharing more of us. Watch and listen live every Tuesday 9am Australian Eastern Daylight Savings Time at broadradio.com.au or find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and LinkedIn at Broad Radio Oz. Talk to us live. Call on 1300 8 Broad. Catch up on demand anytime, anywhere. Every time, everywhere. On the train, we'll be here. 2am existential crisis? We've got you covered. Broad Radio. Here for more. Well, gorgeous Ange, one of the things we love to do on Broad Radio is celebrate women who are doing amazing things all around the world. And how about we cross live now to Antarctica? What would that be like? <gasps> uh, what? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I just love this so much. Now, not surprisingly, the internet connection isn't great in Antarctica. So we're going to be joining on the phone line an amazing woman who is the station leader for Davis Station in Antarctica. Her name is Esther Rowald. Wow. And she joins us now. Hi there, Esther. Hello, ladies. How are we? Oh, oh so delightful to speak with you. Great. Um, thank you. <laughs> well, my first question is, how do you end up at the bottom of the world as station leader for what to me feels like it's so remote, it may as well be a space station, really? How do you end up down there? <laughs> well, you have to want to be here. You can't just fall into work down here. It's quite a long and drawn out process of selection. So most people go through, takes a couple of years, for a lot of people to get down here but um, for me personally it sort of started as a, as a just wanting a change and a challenge and to see if my skills transfer to another industry. Wow uh, when I think of you know a change I think maybe I'll dye my hair a different shade of brown today. <laughs> <laughs> you know I know also Esther you've had just such an, an incredible career and so diverse. You used to be a TV producer is that right? Uh, te television line producer for television drama or film and television drama. I finished, I did a job last year still in between station leader stints. So I've always been freelance. So the opportunity to sort of jump between things is easier. So that's crazy. You, yeah, how do you go from TV line producer to Antarctica? What happened in between? For me personally, it was, I sort of had a bucket list conversation with a friend and I was just kind of thinking of, you know, what else I could do to test myself and challenge myself. You kind of reach that certain age where you have reached a plateau, for want of a different word, in your, your career as far as your experiences and your skill set. And so I just sort of wanted to throw myself off a cliff again. I mean, I have to admit, I didn't think I'd get the job. Um, <laughs> I just thought it was interesting. And in film and TV, you don't even really apply for jobs in the same way. So all of that was a challenge. But, um, but yeah, I ended up here. This is my third stint with them now. So what happened? Was there, you know, an ad in the paper or, you know, something on Gumtree? Like, how did you even know that there was a job there? I was actually watching a documentary on Shackleton on television and playing on my iPad at the same time. And I ended up on the Australian Antarctic Division's website when they were recruiting. So there was a big sort of jobs available sign up. And what kind of qualifications do you need to be a station leader in Antarctica? And 
having worked in TV, both Ange and I are thinking, well, is it the same kind of logistics and people wrangling and, and you know, there are certainly wild animals in both industries? <laughs> and egos. And egos. <laughs> <laughs> so what kind of qualifications? Uh, well, technically for station leader, there aren't any qualifications. The station leaders they have down here have a really diverse background. There's quite a few ex-military or police. One of the people I was away with, another lady, she was out of the health system. Um, I'm just thinking one of the guys is a tradie that stepped up to it. So it's much more general. It is management and logistics, just like you think. And then a lot of people skills because... On top of the job, the big thing that you're managing down here and trying to keep cohesive is the community because we all live where we work for 12 months, so it's quite intense. Yes, yeah, so I did read actually that, you know, one of the things that you were talking about, Esther, is that, you know, it's not just about sort of managing um, people professionally, that for you it's actually a lot more about pastoral care. How do you go about that? Well, I guess you have to try and get to know people. I mean, my assumption, obviously, because I don't come from a trades background, and our winter population here this year, there's 25 of us, and that's about 13, 14 of them are trades. In my usual world, I didn't cross over with trades people very often in anything other than a professional sense. So it's getting to know people, but also, it's, you know, I don't know how to do their job. I have to assume that they're all here because they're very good at what they do. So really, all I'm trying to do is facilitate that they have everything they need to be able to do what they need to do. And then also just to make sure that, you know, within the community and the outer work time, everything's moving along and everyone's sort of happy. At the moment, I'm knitting poppies for Anzac Day. Are you? <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> what, what are you doing with those? Well, we need, we'll have an Anzac Day ceremony. It's got a sort of thing down here that they do. Um, and so, yeah, we just we obviously don't have flowers down here, so I'm just knitting poppies so everyone can wear one for remembrance. Oh, see. That's gorgeous. I mean, that is true leadership. I like hearing that, you know, because you're obviously there to galvanise such a diverse group of people. What, what are the people like and how is it to manage them as a female? Is it harder, do you think, different? What, what, what is your experience? Um, I don't know that it's harder. I mean, it's different, obviously, because, you know, gender people have different relationships. So, you know, they don't play alpha male games with me. Like when you sit here and you watch the elephant seals down on the beach and they do this kind of thing where they challenge each other and they chest bump. And I've seen men down here do that. It's kind of a, a bloke thing. But obviously that's not something they do with me. They, they, it's just a sort of different relationship, I think. And in some ways I think it probably makes it easier and in some ways it probably makes it harder. Aside from, um, you know, poppy knitting, what actually goes on at Davis? What, what do they do there? So over winter, we are here primarily to keep the station alive so it doesn't freeze over with the weather. So there's a lot of tradespeople who are just doing maintenance and regular checks on things. Most of the science that happens on the station that actually requires scientists will happen during summer when the weather is better and the daylight is better and they can actually get out in the field easier to do things. But that said, we now, with the wonders of technology, have quite a lot of remote monitoring stuff going on. So even over winter, once we have the sea ice and we can drive out to the islands, we will go out and download data off the wildlife cameras that are out there. We will do sea ice drilling for a project that's monitoring the sea ice and how it grows. I've got an engineer here who looks after a whole lot of the remote monitoring atmospheric projects and stuff. So he crosses a number of projects just to make sure that all the lights are going in the right direction, I guess. I'm not quite sure. 
um, <laughs> so I can make sure everything's working for those <laughs> over winter. So it's a lot more remote for science over winter. We do have Bureau of Meteorology have two staff here. So they're constantly doing their weather balloon project and their observations, which form part of the international forecasting system. Well, what, what is the environment like? I mean, it's spectacular to look at, but I... I can barely last more than sort of a weekend in the snow because of the cold. <laughs> how, do you, how do you manage that environment? Look, we're incredibly lucky and we have very comfortable buildings. And I have a lovely desk job, so I don't have to be outside nearly as much as the trades guys do. So they're wearing a lot more clothes usually than I am. Um, and it is about clothing and certainly, you know, the Australian Antarctic Division put a lot of investment into the clothing that they give us and that it's fit for purpose. Um, but, you know, you look at the weather forecast, it's usually colder in Canada than it is down here. Really? Wow. Well, just, yeah, yeah, we don't seem to get the extremes. Let me just pull up the weather. So at the moment here, at the moment it's minus 11 and we've got eight knots of wind. So it's about minus 18 with the wind chill. But that doesn't feel that cold. For me, it sort of gets cold once it's below about minus 15. Esther, you're genuinely one of the most fascinating people I've spoken with because you've literally, and oh, no. she's like gone... My life's a bit dull. I'm going to shake it up a little and go to Antarctica. It's, it's, yes, it's amazing. I know. Oh, it's like sort of, you know, two different lives in one existence almost. Does it sort of feel like that, Esther? Yeah, it does a bit. I mean, there are huge similarities, you know, as you guys will know in film and TV when you're putting together a project and it's on location for six months and you have to put a team together and work out all the logistics and, you know, largely what you have with you is what you have. That's quite similar down here to kind of, you know, getting the circus together and going off to, to do a job. So all of that translates quite well and it means that my friends and family are very well trained to my regular absences as well, which in some ways I think makes it easier for me than for people who may have had jobs where they really haven't been away for work a lot. So what is the most amazing thing that you have witnessed? Or, what, you know, what's something... Because I can't even imagine what Antarctica is like. What have you seen? What's the best part of your job? For me, it's probably the wildlife. The idea that you're actually sitting there, there's an iceberg on the horizon and, and there's a penguin in front of you is pretty extraordinary. They're that, that would be. You, know, you have to sort of punch yourself, pinch yourself moments. Of I, course. What's, if, if there is such a thing, what's the worst part of the job? Uh, having to pee in a bottle out in the field. Oh, my God. <laughs> I think I'd like to find that much okay. easier. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. I'm not very good with my, my she-wee yet. I haven't quite perfected that one. <laughs> I'm telling oh, you, Esther, any moment, any split second in which I thought maybe I might consider a career change at some point in the future and head off to an adventure like that, <laughs> you have just completely just cancelled that because there's no chance I could pee in a bottle ever. <laughs> You'd have to learn how to use a shiwi as well. I would. I really would. Um, I did want to ask you, Esther, um, what do you miss about you know, being being in, in a place that's that's far more convenient? Is it sort of, you know, grabbing a greasy burger on Uber Eats whenever you like or, you know, heading out to a bar? What, what do you miss? Uh, I obviously I miss friends and that kind of social life, but as someone pointed it out to me at the end of my first year and I hadn't quite worked out how to put it into words, but what I really missed after kind of 12 months was the ability to be anonymous somewhere. Explain because that. Because wherever you are down here, you know everybody you know, really well. Right. And, and you can't just ignore people and sit in a quiet corner and have a coffee. You have to be polite and say good morning. So 
so it became that thing of like, I just want to walk into a cafe and no one knows me and I don't have to talk to anyone and I can just read the paper. Yes. Wow, that w would never have occurred to me because I'd sort of think, oh, well, if you just wanted some alone time, just, you know, walk out the door and keep walking, I suppose. <laughs> That's one way. There's a difference between being alone and being anonymous, though. And I guess because I've always lived in large cities, I've always had that. Whereas I guess if you come from a, a smaller country, you know, country town, or one of my guys here at the moment is from Lord Howe Island, which I think only has about 350 people. So you're used to knowing everyone. But I've always lived in big cities, so that anonymity thing's always a given. Mm, amazing. Uh, look, Esther, you have really inspired me because I think it's a common experience for people to get to an age and look around and go, oh, is this it? How do I, mm. how do I reshape yeah. my life and start a new adventure? And I, I just love that you did that. It's amazing. Thank you. Well, Esther, thanks so much for joining us on Board Radio. I know you're going into winter, so does that mean you have long days of complete darkness? We'll have about six weeks here where the sun doesn't come over the horizon. So it's not completely dark, yeah. you kind of have twilight, but the sun itself doesn't come over the horizon. You do get spectacular skies, though, because you get great orange sort of sunsets that go for hours. And hopefully, what I'm hoping is that with that sort of weather, I'll um, be able to walk to the office at a certain time in the morning and have an aurora overhead. Wow. Wow. Amazing. Oh, Esther, it's just been fascinating to speak with you. We're really grateful for your time on Broad Radio. And please take care over this, <laughs> these long winter months, which, uh, you know, we complain in Melbourne all the time about how long mm -hmm. winter takes. But, wow, you guys are real. You've got some serious resilience down there. You take care. Thank you very much. Lovely to speak to you. You too. You too. I have to let you go because you are the uh, very example of a working mum who's juggling a thousand things and uh, we've gone over time. I know, I know. I'm so sorry that I have to leave. You do, but, but I'm going to see you again soon. Yeah, yeah, we're going to see you again soon. And I'm, I'm, I'm not wrapping up the show just yet because we have a couple of phone calls from incredible women who have done amazing things to reshape their lives. So I'm going to say goodbye to you, Ange, because you've got another thing to get to right now. You have a fantastic day and we'll see you soon. See you soon, everyone. Yes. And in the meantime, yes, this is the thing that has inspired me about that conversation with uh, Esther Rodewald from Davis Station is that she just decided to up and change her life. And so I asked the question on our Facebook, have you done this? Have you decided to just reshape your life? Uh, to go on an adventure, to find something that's a bit more fulfilling for you. And we had some fantastic women reach out and tell us their stories. And so I was really excited to invite some of them on the show. You can call us 1300-8-BROAD. You don't have to wait to be invited. But in the meantime, we are joined by Tara. Good morning, Tara. Oh, hang on a second. <laughs> I don't know if this was worthwhile. <laughs> oh no, it's not going to work. Oh, look, I don't know what's going on there. This is a bit of a tricky thing. Um, maybe I should have uh, quit while I was ahead with Ange. Here we go, here we go, here we go. I think I have Tara now. Hello, Tara. Look, Monique. Oh, Monique. Hi. <laughs> It is so great to speak with you, Monique. Now, we uh, chatted yesterday and you told me your story. How did you 
change your life? What was the thing that you do, did to decide, actually, I'm going to com- do something completely different and find some fulfilment here? Um, well, I was just working as a um, call centre operator and it was very unsatisfying and I didn't enjoy it at all. It was just sort of a job I fell into. Um, and then I always looked at my some of my family members and friends and saw them actually enjoying their work and being passionate about the jobs that they had. And I always thought, what can I do that I'm actually going to love? What can I be passionate about? And I was always sort of searching but couldn't find anything. Um, and then as I had children... Um, and I was a stay-at-home mum with them, they ended up, I had two children that ended up being diagnosed with a hearing loss. And so because of that, I started learning um, Auslan, Australian Sign Language, uh, to be able to communicate with them. And as that sort of progressed, I just fell in love with this language and I started meeting deaf people that were helping me learn it. Um, And I thought, you know what? This is what I want to do. This is what I want to learn and become... uh, an interpreter and make that my career and there you are in that photo you're doing a sign there what is that sign that you are doing uh that is the sign for interpret or interpreter um you can use that sign for either of those um like the noun or the verb but yeah that's interpreting that sign and this is your job now. You are an interpreter. Um, I understand yeah. that you, you juggle lots of other things as well, but that's that's your passion. How would you describe the difference between you now and the difference back then when you were doing a job that you didn't particularly uh, find fulfilling? Oh, I'm, I'm way happier in myself. I'm just, um, I feel satisfied when I walk out the door and, and I feel excited to go to work. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, yeah, it was, it's just, Back then, you know, I'd sometimes come home and and I'd be crying to my husband going, I hate this, I don't want to do it. But the same old thing that sort of drags you down is the fact you've got a mortgage and you've got to feed kids and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, it was definitely uh, not as good personally and inside myself I didn't feel satisfied. And you did a considerable amount of study for this, which is not easy to do later in life. No. So I was in my 30s and um, I live in Geelong, so regional really. Um, And to study Auslan, unfortunately, the the courses in Geelong were only basic courses. And I wanted to extend myself and and learn it and become fluent. So I had to travel to Melbourne to finish that course off. Um, But because I had the children and my husband was working in the day, I did night courses. So two nights a week for five years I drove to Melbourne to learn Auslan and um, then go on to the interpreter course after that as well so it was pretty challenging yeah well I want to give a shout out to all people who choose to study later in life it is not easy once you have kids and jobs and families and there's so much that you're juggling there and I wonder if at any time you thought that you might give up um yeah look there were definitely times where I, I didn't want to make that trip down that highway. Um, I was lucky, though, that there were a couple of other Geelong people doing it and sometimes we'd carpool and um, have a chat in the car on the way. Um, there was also a time when I actually did my first year of the interpreting course that uh, at the end of the exam I actually 
I didn't pass that first exam and I, <clears throat> excuse me, I just, yeah, I just thought, oh, well, I, I, it's not for me. It's not what I thought it was going to be. It was too hard and I, and I didn't pass it. Um, but my husband just kept encouraging me and said, you can't waste all these years of studying and not finish it off. You've got to try again. And so I did. And, and that, that time I was successful. So I'm grateful for the support that I had around me to make it possible. Oh, well, I love this story of you finding your passion and finding the thing yeah. that, that, that fulfills you. I'm, I just love it. Thank you so much for sharing it, Monique. No worries. Thank you. And we also have Tara. Hello, Tara. Hello. Tara, tell us, what did you do to totally change your life and why? Uh, so what I did, so I, um, I left school at the end of year 11, a long time ago, way in, back in the 80s, and I, um, I fell into office admin and I did sort of admin, PA, receptionist kind of roles for 30 years. But I found it incredibly unsatisfying. Um, it wasn't fulfilling. I always knew that there'd be something I'd be good at and something I'd be passionate about, but I just didn't know what it was. And um, the my light bulb moment came in uh, on uh, Christmas Eve 2015. My dad had a heart attack and spent two weeks in the Austin. And while he was in there, I just had this really powerful light bulb moment while I was watching the nurses. I was just thinking, I think... I think I could be really good at that. I think that that is something that I would love to do and be really good at. And I had this amazing conversation with an ICU nurse um, after Dad had his open heart surgery. And so his nurse was a man, I think he was in his late 40s, uh, and he'd been a truck driver most of his life. And in his early 40s, he just said, I don't want to do that anymore. Um, I'm going to become, um, you know, I w he went to uni, he did his nursing degree, he did a postgrad, and then he became um, an ICU nurse. And so I was enthralled by this conversation with him, but I had told myself, I'm too old. I can't do that. I'm too old. I was 45 at the time. And he just said, no way, you are not too old. You are not too old. If you want to do it, you do it. So that's what I did. I started my nursing degree in 2017. I graduated last year. I graduated and turned 50 in the same week. And now I'm a registered nurse and I absolutely love it. And what does it feel like when you're caring for your patients now? What do you, what sorts of, what kind of a person do you feel you are now? Um, well, when I'm in the room caring for my patients, it just feels so me. I just feel like I'm totally in my zone. Um, you know, I'm such an, I'm a naturally caring and compassionate person, but I'm also so interested in anatomy and physiology and how the body heals and disease process and all that kind of thing. So those two things together and, you know, just my natural skills and, um, you know, I'm really working with my strengths. It just feels so me and so right and so what I was born to do, I think. <laughs> it just took me a long time to discover it. Oh, I just love what that ICU nurse said to you, you're, you're not too old. You're never too yes. old to go and find yes. the thing that is right for you. So if someone exactly. is watching or listening to this and thinking, oh, I want to find that thing, I want to find the spark, the passion, what do you say to them? Because it can be, I imagine, a fairly scary thing to face and to launch yourself out there. Absolutely. It was super scary. But what I would say to them is don't listen to your stories. If I had listened to my I'm too old story, I would probably still be doing admin work. I, wouldn't, I, might, you know, I might have bought into that and not dug in and got the degree done. So if you're thinking about it, don't listen to your stories. Just 
do the thing that you really want to do and put all those fears aside and just get it done because it is the most amazing feeling and it's definitely the best thing I've done in my life. Oh, congratulations, Tara. And I can see there's a tattoo there that you got on your wrist, registered nurse 50 because you turned 50 (laughs) and was registered as a nurse in the same year. What an extraordinary thing. Yeah, it was. It was it was an amazing month that in October because I turned fifty, I finished my degree and that's also when I found out that I was successful in getting a graduate year. Um and so I and you know, as part of a graduate nurse program. So it after a horrible year, twenty twenty, it was actually an incredible month. Oh, awesome. Well congratulations, Tara. And all the best with uh your Thank career you. as a nurse. You've got many Thank years you. in sensible shoes walking around. <laughs> <laughs> I actually wear trainers, but I know what you mean. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us on Broad Radio, Tara. Thanks, Joe. And to Monique as well. That's it. We would love you to give us a call anytime, 1300 Broad. It's just so important to us that you join our conversation. Broad Radio is here for you and for um, you and your stories. We're here to elevate what you have experienced in your life and to share with others. So you can, of course, catch up on Broad Radio. Broad Radio On The Go is the podcast and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. And we would love you to like and subscribe on YouTube or follow us on Facebook and like us on Facebook. In the meantime, it is super late. I just, I need to go. I've got to stop talking. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you again next week. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.